Well, as we continue our series on the Sermon on the Mount, today's text comes from Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. Hear now the word of the Lord. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God shall indeed stand forever. Let's pray again. So, Father, we need you as we come to your word. Help us to understand. Lord, as we come to this text, I pray especially that you would help us just not to be so critical of others, that our first emotion would be love, that we would seek to build others up instead of tear them down. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, we've all been in that situation. We're sitting with friends or co-workers or perhaps even an individual that we need to talk to about something. And we're discussing about how something is against the law of God. Something big, like abortion or homosexuality or adultery or murder. I mean, things that Scripture's really, really clear about. And bam, somebody throws down the trump card. Jesus tells us not to judge. And all of a sudden, you can hear crickets. You can now hear your own breath going in and out. There's that awkward silence, and then everybody just kind of scatters away, not real sure what to do with the situation. So what does Jesus mean by that? And so this morning, we come to this text, and we seek to discover together what Jesus means when he says, Judge not that you be not judged. Well, when someone uses this trump card, inside we, we've got to know that there's something more going on. There's more to the story. We, we don't doubt that Jesus said it. It's real clear. Scripture records it. But, but there is tension, right? Because Jesus doesn't call us to be idiots. We are seemingly needful of making helpful evaluations of things. Imagine if your godly 15-year-old daughter who loves the Lord, is involved with her youth group, is repentant of her sins, has every evidence of walking with the Lord Jesus Christ, and she comes home one day and brings home a boy that she would like to start dating. Now this boy is really more of a man. He's 17, and he's proud of his three cocaine convictions. He's holding an axe, and it's dripping blood. And he broadcasts that he's no longer welcome at home. Now, wouldn't we be wise to say, uh, no, honey, you can't date this axe murderer. But, but are we making a judgment about this person? Are we, we violating Christ's injunction here against judging others? And so when we come to a tough text like this, as we've had to do many times in the Sermon on the Mount, we have to look at it within the context of Scripture. And I'm going to give you the spoiler of where we're headed. One commentator evaluates this well. He says, Jesus does not forbid the evaluation of others. Right? If an axe murderer is standing in front of you, please evaluate him or her. 
He forbids, however, the condemnation of others. We're going to explore that in a minute. So let's look at the biblical examples of God's call to us to make biblical and proper judgments. In fact, if you just look down in, in your scriptures, I hope you have them open now that I've closed mine. Uh, Matthew chapter 7, if you look over, uh, right over in the next column, you look at verses uh, 15 and 16, we read this, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize, recognize them by their fruits. How are we to recognize false prophets, false, te- false teachers? We're to look at their lives. You look at the lives of these folks on TV who are flying $40 million jets and have 12 mansions. and Well, we're to look at their lives and make an evaluation if they are proper teachers of the gospel or not. And the answer is no. We keep going. Over in John 7, 24, we read this. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Here we see that we are to make proper judgments and we're to make sure that we use the right standard, not judging a book by its cover, by outward appearances, but rather using the right standard, the right measure for judgment. And that is God's law, God's word. Over in 1 Corinthians 5.12, we read this. For what have I to do with judging others? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Here Paul tells the Corinthian church that they are supposed to no longer associate with those in the church who bear the name of Christian who are living in gross public and unrepentant sexual sin after having been warned and refusing to repent. Indeed, he calls them to evaluate the decisions they have made and then to take the appropriate measures. Well, there are a lot of other texts we could look at. The last one I'll mention is Matthew 18, 15 in which Jesus tells us how to deal with brothers and sisters in Christ when they have sinned against us to the level we really need to address it with them. We read there, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Aren't we making certain judgments or evaluations about the actions of others and their impact on us and the necessity, the need to go and talk to them? Well, let's return back to our text and see how the rest of this context informs this command, judge not, so that you might not be judged. We see in verse 5 something very important. We read there, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Note that he doesn't say you cannot and you should not address the sin of your brother. Rather, he says, Make sure you take care of your own sin first. And when we address our sin, we will be able to see clearly, to understand properly, and to have the right attitude to go and help others. But there's even greater evidence that we are called to make proper and godly judgments or evaluations. And that's in verse 6, which is kind of a hard verse. Read it with me. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Wow! This is really in the same passage where Jesus tells us not to judge folks? Has, has Jesus, the incarnate deity, who is perfectly sinless, he's righteous and he's, he's 100% holy, is he really calling someone a dog? Not the fluffy kind that you might be holding in your lap right now, but an unclean, mangy, dangerous street dog? Is he really calling someone a pig 
not the cute, cuddly kind that's in the movie Babe, but rather the dangerous, wild, unclean, nasty kind. Yes. Yes, he is. Specifically here, he's using these words, which are hard words, to talk about the fact that there are times in ministry, in evangelism, not just from a preacher's perspective, but just in our everyday lives, there are times when it's appropriate to move on. When someone meets the word of God with scorn and disdain over and over and over again, then Christ calls us to move on. In fact, Matthew 18, 15, I think it's 15, Excuse me, Matthew 10, 14 through 15, Jesus is going to tell his disciples, And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Wow. You know, anecdotally, I've, I've had this experience only a few times in ministry. But there was a time that really stuck out to me. I won't use the guy's real name, although none of you would know him. His name was Joe. We'll call him that. It was my last church in Montgomery, and uh, Brian McDonald, my senior pastor, and I were sitting, talking, I think, in a staff meeting. And, and in walks this person, and he asks, you know, what is this place? <laughs> Man, don't you love—I mean, preachers love that kind of thing. They walk into your office, so please tell me about Jesus. I'd be glad to. So we got to tell them about what the church is and, and who we were and what we believed about the Lord Jesus Christ. And he seemed interested. So we began to meet together. And we had some very productive conversations over several month process. And, and so it finally came to the point where it was time to read some scripture together. So we committed to read the Gospel of John over a month period, meeting weekly to talk about it. And things changed really quickly. No longer was it unbelief. That's, a, that's, that's one of those things you can deal with, right? You pray that God would heal someone of their unbelief. But it went from unbelief to disdain. From, oh, that's nice you believe that, to you're crazy. To laughing. I mean, I remember him sitting there. We were in the sandwich shop over uh, downtown in Montgomery. And he sat back and started laughing at the word of God. Being scornful about the great treasure, the pearl the good news of Jesus did this over and over again. So it was time to move on. So I stopped initiating with him, and he stopped after a while getting in touch with me. I'd respond to him when he texted me. We moved on. Do you know what happened? Two months later, he died. Mid-30s. Completely unexpected. It was so hard. We are called to make proper judgments from time to time. But as we return to the cultural trump card, right, where, we, where someone throws down that trump card of Jesus tells us not to judge, how are we to deal with that? You know, given the, the text we just looked at, there are times when we are called to make evaluations or judgments about someone's lifestyle or actions. It is not wrong. It is not wrong to say that someone's lifestyle is ungodly. It is wrong, it is wrong to hate them for it. It's a big difference. It is not wrong to say that someone's lifestyle is ungodly. It is wrong to hate them for it. And if you love someone in the midst of their sin, you're not going to make those really hypercritical statements. Instead, you're going to address them as we ought, out of love and for concern for who they are. 
Jesus has made it real clear on the Sermon on the Mount that we're not allowed to hate anybody, not even our enemies. We can disagree with others, and we can even speak against them in public if they're a public figure. We can pray against their sin, but it must be done out of love, out of love for the sinner. And so we have to push back here against the culture that says that to disagree with someone is to hate them. The narrative of our popular culture is that if you love someone, you have to accept all their decisions, life choices, opinions. Otherwise, you hate them. That's just not true. How do we know that? Because that's how God deals with us. Romans 5, 6 through 8 says here, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When did Christ love us? When we were lost in sin, he loved us and did did something about it. He didn't pretend like there wasn't anything wrong with our life decisions. He came because of our decisions. He came because of our sin. He came so that we might be forgiven, that we might be bathed in his blood, pardoned for our iniquity. And then he gave us the new birth and the Holy Spirit. There might be change within us. But as we return to our text, there is tension here, isn't there? Because the inerrant word of God does say in verse 1, judge not that you might not, or excuse me, judge not that you be not judged. So there, there must be some kind of judgment that's sinful. And here the context helps us. Look at verses 3 through 5. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, and, but you do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. You know, Jesus here is specifically speaking against condemning brothers and sisters in Christ of things that we ourselves are guilty of. That's the real clear application of this text. To illustrate this, Jesus uses two sizes of wood in two people's eyes. One person has a moat, I think as the King James Version says it, or a speck of wood, a piece of dust, or a small piece of, of sawdust in his eye. The other one, the one who's doing all the judging, he's walking around not with a speck, but a whole log. In fact, as one commentator points out, the proper translation really is a beam. I think the King James says that. The beam here could be a reference to a beam that's a structural support for a house in those days, a, a piece of wood that could be as, as wide as five feet in diameter and, uh, and 40 feet long. I mean, this is great hyperbole, you know, using exaggerated language to drive home a point. Now here's, here's one person with a piece of wood that's five feet wide and 40 feet long walking around, you know, hitting everything, and then across the room he sees someone and says, hey, I think you've got a piece of dust in your eye. It's quite the picture, isn't it? What does this look like? Well, when we get mad at others for things that we're guilty of. It's like when we get mad at someone for being a gossip about us. As we gossip about them, telling everybody about how they're a gossip and how they've been talking about your back, behind your back, and you're doing it to everybody else. That, that, that's, that's what's in view here. Or when a child is a bully to other children at home or on the playground, and he gets really upset when someone pushes back or... When an adulterer gets mad when they're cheated on, or as my children point out, 
when I tell them not to eat until Christy gets to the table and I tell them as I'm putting a, a chip in my own mouth. You know, there are times when we're to approach brothers and sisters in Christ, when they're in unrepentant sin, calling them to repentance, reminding them of the love of God. But first, we've got to do something about our own sin to make sure we're not doing the very same thing. You know, but it is hypocritical to condemn others for the thing that we are doing. But it really doesn't have to be the same sin, does it? We really ought to be careful about pronouncing condemning judgments on others when there are other unrelated but obvious sinful things in our lives. You know, one of the dangers of social media is that people get to see all the pictures you post, right? Right now in our cultural moment, it's not uncommon to see people making really pious-sounding statements about shutting down churches or not shutting down churches or what you should do in church or mask or no mask. What about what it looks like to uh, be faithful to God in this season? And those are all great questions we need to ask. But all over Facebook and social media, there are all these really pious, dogmatic statements. But, But, you know, the thing is, on Facebook, you get to see what other people, what else they post. And so here's someone who's making a very pious-sounding statement, and then as you scroll through their post, you see that they display not a love for God and neighbor, but a desire to stir up contention. They demonstrate a flexible commitment to God's commands about using godly speech to build others up, and they like to tear others down. Or engage with other media on Facebook that's just ungodly. Do do we do well to make statements publicly when our lives are out of sorts? That really drives people away from Jesus. That's not helping. As we extend this principle of not making improper judgments, one of the greatest areas that we all need to work on, especially me, is just struggling with a critical or judgmental spirit. It's like when we read in the Ten Commandments in our Bible study and then we immediately pick up the phone and say, Hey, hey neighbor, I thought about you this morning when I was doing my Bible study. (laughs) A lot of times we read the Word of God for others instead of ourselves. Let's be honest, we are really quick to be critical of others. We find it fun to sit around and talk about others and their problems and their failures and their bad choices. There will be times when we need to make godly evaluations, but, but must we share them with everyone? You know, when you do that, it makes you feel good about yourself. Let me tell you about how terrible this guy is. And it does make you feel better about yourself. And and that's called sin, right? Tearing others down to make yourself look good. You know, oftentimes people will consider criticism as a gift of the Holy Spirit. (laughs) That God has uniquely qualified them to pronounce withering opinions about everything and everyone. Beware of such people. And when we find that in our hearts, we've got to repent. You know, I recently was aware of just, just how negative I can be. You know, I purpose to try to go through the day without making negative comments. It's, it's tough to make it very long, isn't it? But isn't it good that this isn't how God deals with us? You know, he disciplines us when we run, and he's not blind to our failures. But the amazing thing about the gospel is that he has set his affection, not his condemnation, upon us, upon failures like us. He has done this by setting his condemnation upon his son whom he loved. He set his condemnation upon his son, Jesus, our Savior. Because of that, Psalm 103.10 can be true of us. That God does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Do we do well to 
always point out the failure of others? I know it's fun, but do we do well to do this? Do we do well to relate to others in a way that is contrary to how God deals with us, that he has shown us so mercy? Do we do well to show no mercy to others? Wouldn't it be nice if we just cut each other a little slack sometimes? Let little things go, not being bothered by insignificant things, but instead dedicating our lives to serving our God and his people like our Savior did. You know, one point of application I think that is helpful here is that uh, so often we judge people's motives. We make a, a, a jump. We jump to a conclusion that they have done this. Oh, I know their heart. I know what's really going on. We're so quick to write someone off or categorize someone based on a, a single interaction or a single comment or a single view. Oh, they're, they want to wear a mask. Oh, they must be fearful people. Oh, they don't want to wear a mask. Well, they must be stupid people. Right? I mean, really? There's probably something else going on here. You know, think about when someone is short with you, which is going to happen. Do we re- immediately write them off as a jerk? jerk who hates us and we take it personally or do we wonder if they're having a bad day they could be really struggling that day or even being in chronic pain chronic pain does bad things to you you know with all the different reactions we've seen with COVID-19 we have to remember that godly people are on all sides of this equation it really is true it's okay to disagree with uh with folks on Facebook about uh, how we should respond I know as we make a decision about sending kids to school I mean those are those are hard decisions but let's enter into with it humility rather than just saying, hey, those are some crazy folks. Well, ultimately having a judgmental or constantly critical spirit comes from heart problems. It comes from heart problems. Most of the time when we are overly judgmental, it betrays a low view of our own sin. You know, it's so easy to see the very public failures of others and yet to be blind to our, our own When we see others' sin as great, it is probably because we have such a low view of ours. It's interesting, verse 5 tells us that sin actually blinds us. It blinds us to be able to see clearly. It says, first take the log out of your own eyes so that you may be able to see clearly then to take the speck out of your brother's eye. When we are in sin, it blinds us. And I think so often we are blinded to the fact that we're grave sinners. Pride fuels this blindness to our own problems. Pride says, I'm a pretty good guy. And everybody else, man, there's some really bad folks. At least I'm not like my neighbor. Don't you know what he does? I got great neighbors. I'm not talking about you. How often are we like the Pharisees who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt? And yet when we have a realistic view of our own failures... We see that we should be careful not to cast the first stone at others. One of my counseling professors in seminary said, I got issues, you got issues, all God's children got issues. That's a really good place to start as we interact with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Having a low view of our, our sinfulness, our own personal sinfulness, then corresponds to a low view of our need of the grace of God. If we have a low view of our sin, we'll have a low view of the need for salvation and forgiveness. Small sin, small Savior. Great sin, great Savior. But isn't it great how God is the God of second chances? 
You know, in our own judgments, we would say that someone is worthless or a lost cause. But what about the Apostle Paul, who was the greatest persecutor of the early church? And they do become one of the greatest evangelists of all time. Or Peter, who denied Christ not once, twice, but three times in Christ's hour of greatest need. And yet he would be used by God to do great things and to take the gospel all over the Mediterranean. These men had high view of their sin and correspondingly high view of their need for the grace of our great Savior. What our great Savior here warns us against is making improper judgments. Because the result is that we will be judged by both God and man. Verses 1 and 2 tell us, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. When we declare improper condemnations and judgment upon others, we are putting ourselves in the place of God. He is the judge of people's hearts. We're not. And putting ourselves in God's place, that's not a real helpful place to be. It turns out that God really is a God of justice, and He stands, or excuse me, sits in the throne of His righteousness, and justice will be achieved whether or not we sit on the couch and judge others in our gossip or not. We will have to answer to the Lord for our sinful judging of others. Praise God for the cleansing blood of Jesus that forgives us, washes us, purifies us, not only the sins that we're being judged about by, but also when we sinfully judge others. Don't you need that grace? I know I do. But I think there's also a very practical application here that we should expect others to judge us back when we judge them. The same measure that we have applied to others will be used by others to judge us back and to determine their treatment of us. Think about it. When we treat others with great kindness and mercy, when they fail or mess up, they are much more likely to treat us with grace and mercy when we fail them. Because we're going to fail everybody. Think about the impact on our marriages and our relationships and our communities and, may I say, our country. If the measure by which we judge others was forgiveness instead of bitterness, patience instead of perfection, gentleness instead of flying off the handle. Well, I want to conclude with an illustration. Imagine, if you will, two men that are stuck on death row. Now, they're slated to be executed within hours of each other, and they've been properly convicted. They both deserve their sentence, But here's the thing. You know what they like to do? They like to yell back and forth, arguing who is worse. No, you're worse. No, no, you are. You are. Because one used a gun and one used a knife. They judge each other, but they're both guilty. And this is kind of like what we do when we pass judgment on each other. You know, each and every one of us deserves God's wrath and condemnation both in this life and the next, in hell for all of eternity. The preacher of this church deserves hell. You do too. We are all guilty. Do do we do well to argue about who is worse? But then we go back to our inmates, because the story can't be done yet. What if there's someone who shows up one day, perhaps a day before their scheduled execution, and tells them, I know you're both guilty. For the governor has agreed that I can take your punishment. I can take your condemnation. Now the two inmates, they look at each other and think, man, this this guy looks really familiar. Where have we seen him before? Then it dawns on them. 
This is the judge who sentenced both of them. He tells them that he will die so that they can live and be set free. They can't believe it. But the next day, it happens. And the moment that his body is lifeless is the very moment that they are set free and released from the prison. And so these men, freed because someone else died in their place, they, they go free. And do you think they do well to continue to argue about who's the worst? They've been forgiven and set free because someone died in their place. And so we as God's people have been freed from the guilt and the power of sin because God himself took on human nature, lived a perfect life, and died the sacrificial death on the cross that we could not. He was condemned for us. And then he rose victoriously on the third day, showing that our sins were paid for. So I ask you, do we do well to continually judge and condemn each other when we have deserved hell forever and we have all, just the same, received God's forgiveness and love through Christ Jesus? Do we do well to continually judge and condemn each other? Instead, let's be grateful and love each other more. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the radical, scandalous love that is ours in Christ Jesus, that God himself will become man and take on flesh and die in our place. We who were condemned to death, not just the one time, but for all eternity, eternal death. We thank you that the blood of Jesus is sufficient and efficient to cover all of our sins, including when we judge others sinfully. Help us then, Lord, to look upon others with love, instead of condemnation, concern, instead of just casting folks away. Work in our hearts that we might love like you do. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.